I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Retired Michigan State agronomist Jerry Greiger credits long-term no-till with higher yields, improved soil structure, higher organic matter, and better water holding capacity. In this second installment of a two-part series of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lassiter and Jerry Greiger continue their talk about many of the lessons learned from decades of using no-till practices on Jerry's 140-acre farm, where he no-tills black beans, soybeans, oats, wheat, and hay. Listen in as they discuss Jerry's on-farm research, how selecting the right corn hybrid can boost yields by 20 to 30 bushels, his recipe for controlling lamb's quarter, his thoughts on getting landlords on board with no-till, and more. Let's talk about your own farming operation now. And it's since you've retired from an RCS, farming is no longer a hobby for you. It's a way of life, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's a lot more enjoyable now that I have more time to spend on it. <laughs> yeah. So you got 300, 350 acres? Or? Oh, no, no. I couldn't buy it all. And- you know, when landlords die, sometimes they take it with them, and it goes to somebody else. <laughs> sure. I don't have any granite ground anymore. I only have 140 acres, and it's all I own, okay. where I still do all my no-till experimentation. <laughs> so what are you using as a planter? Oh, I'm still using the white 6100 with a Rossum three-colder system. Okay. Yeah, it's been a good planter. Uh, what crops are you growing? Oh, I've, I've got... No-till black beans, and I've got corn, and I've got soybeans, and I've got oats, and I've got wheat, a little bit of hay. No-till all of them. <laughs> yeah. So Michigan is really big on uh, edible beans, and I assume tell, – tell us a little about black beans, because we're going to have a lot of listeners that don't even know what black beans are. Well, black beans are used a lot for human consumption in Mexico and also in South America. Black beans and rice is a daily staple for a lot of those people. Cuba Mm -hmm. is a big potential market for us. So if we can open that market up ever, tolerate weather a little bit better than this kind of weather like we're having today in the fall can be detrimental, as you know, to Navy beans. But now that the varieties are being bred by Dr. Kelly at Michigan State to be more upright mm-hmm. and less pods are laying on the ground now, like not like the old Michelites, the old seaways and some of them old varieties where all the pods be laying on the ground and then we'd get a wet season and all the bottom beans would rot, you'd have a mess. Mm-hmm. These newer varieties now can be planted 
in narrow rows and direct harvested like soybeans, and that makes it a lot more feasible than no-till black beans. I think at one, probably still true, but at one time Michigan was probably the biggest producer of edible beans anywhere in the U.S., and they used to talk about navy beans pretty much dominating the whole country up in the thumb of Michigan. Yeah, I don't know if they still are the dominant player in that anymore. A lot of people went to soybeans because, again, the risk from weather damage on right. dry beans. And now the price of soybeans, a lot of, I talked to my bean seed supplier last, just a couple of days ago, I went and picked up my black beans. A lot of farmers are grumbling about the $36 contract for black beans because they look at the price of soybeans at $15 and say, why am I bothering with black beans when I could be growing $15 soybeans? Yeah. But you and I know that it's not going to last. So. Right, right. <laughs> so walk me through the no-till research you're doing on your farm this year, or what you got going, what you've learned. Well, you know, there's a lot of interest in earlier planting of soybeans, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I tried some earlier planting of some pioneer soybeans. I, I put them in the 13th of April just to see if I could kill them with a frost. Yeah. Well, we had six days of frost in a row the first week of May. They were just about out of the ground, but I planted them two inches deep. They made it, so I was glad of that. Um, I planted them at two different seeding rates, and I've got six replications. So me and the Pioneer Man, we're going to have a a meeting this this, uh, fall and see how that turns out. He's always Mm -hmm. getting after me about planting my beans too thick. I said, okay, once we're all, we're going to settle this whole (laughs) argument. We'll we'll see if we can get away. Again, this is one of them things under long-term no-till. Yeah. Some of the things that we think we know may not hold true under long-term no-till. You might be able to get away with higher plant populations to get a bigger yield than you would under conventional till. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I don't think you can compare the two and say you're going to come out the same. And I heard that in the no-till conference this year, some guy got up and said, I'm now planting my no-till corn at 44,000 because that's where I get my best yield. Sure. And, you know, but, but if you let them to the university, 36,000 is all you need. So, mm-hmm. This is the type of thing, I, when I talk transitional no-till, what you did back there in the beginning may not hold true down the road once your soil gets healed and the biology starts working for you. You might be able to do some things a little different to get higher yields, mm-hmm. like higher plant populations. But you got to do a little experiment on your own. Because varieties, oh, God, varieties make a difference. I've been in this narrow strip cropping thing since 2004. I was always fascinated by that for controlling traffic and uh, for getting the edge effect of light. And uh, I've seen some pretty good results with that system on on my farm. Mm-hmm. Um, consistent with what Giles Randalls at ARS saw in Minnesota, he did some actual replicated research with it. He did three reps. I got 19 reps back there, so I got more reps than him. Mm. But anyway, but I got more deer than him, too. But anyway, <laughs> uh, seen some really good results with it, with different varieties. And, you know, a varietal selection in that system, uh, 44,000, 
can make a 30 bushel difference just just sure. by a different variety and you you start to see more twin rows on the outside mm-hmm. of that's with that system i've also gone to like a twin row concept but i'm getting old frank i can't drive as state as i used to <laughs> so my twin rows look a little wavy you know yeah so but i don't know how they would do if they were perfect you know but mm-hmm. uh, I, I gotta admit they're not perfect but the twin row uh, where i did some comparison with hybrids got me 20 bushel more yield and also allows me to put all my dry fertilizer on at planting time front load up all my nitrogen at planting time using a blend of slow release fertilizer the four hour people say, Oh, you're absolutely crazy. You can't do that. You're going, oh, 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 it won't work. It's not so. Yeah. <laughs> it will work. But I strip ban that fertilizer. I don't place it two by two. Ray and I came up with a strip banding system where you, and that was based again on some research that was done again in Minnesota by Giles Randall on Ridge Till. Mm-hmm. Looking at strip banding potassium on the ridge because he he got a forty bushel bump when he did that. So we put that together and did some work on that and found yeah we got a bump by strip banding as well. So I didn't want to use twenty eight percent no more because of the corrosiveness of the planter. I said well what if you use dry fertilizer, a slow release uh, N and and uh, you know strip band it like this with you know a blend and will it will it work out just like the 28 did you know with a one pass system but i'm making two passes because i'm because i'm putting on close to 500 pounds of actual fertilizer to the acre in that twin row system Mm -hmm. 250 for each row see you know it's worked out great for me i'm just tickled to death with it how far apart would your twin rows try to be well I try to put them seven inches apart, but okay. in reality, they end up somewhere between 15 and seven, depending on whether I fall asleep on the way. I'm 67, <laughs> you know. I fall asleep once in a while. <laughs> right. Shouldn't admit it, but it's so. I got so bad one year, I made an X in the field. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it works, and plus it gives you controlled traffic. My goal originally was Project 300. I was trying to come up with a way to consistently produce 300 bushel corn. That's that's a pretty lofty goal mm-hmm. when you're setting at 200, you know. But all these little things act like synergism. The extra light, the extra population, the slow-release fertilizer, um, the variety selection. Uh, I've done some foliar feed work with uh, kelp and, and some of this other stuff from Oregon composting and then micronutrient work and yeah it, it all starts to add up i never reached 300 yet probably never will because mm-hmm. i got a hundred critters that helped me from <laughs> getting 300 bushel you know what kind of critters i'm talking about right yeah right, dear the, the four-legged ones yeah right. they're dirty buggers they get in there and they like that edge and so they eat a lot of that corn before i get it so <laughs> so what but, when you're doing when you're doing this strip till, you got corn, and in between you got soybeans or something else. Yeah, soybeans. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I just was double checking. I got I got a printout of your transitional thing, and I'm looking at the pictures. So. Yeah. So you made a comment there that no till 
in some years has been dried out earlier and let you plant even earlier than your people using minimum tillage or conventional tillage, right? Oh yeah. Usually I'm in the field planting them before my all my big tilled neighbors are some years. And mm -hmm. that particularly what was that wet year? Was it two thousand eighteen? It was particularly wet in the spring? Probably, yeah. I think so. And uh I got all my corn planted before all that rain hit. Just mm -hmm. because I wasn't working the field to get ready to plant corn, I was yeah. planting corn. Yeah. And I, I always say, if I'm making dust when I'm planting, it's okay. <laughs> That's yeah. my rule of thumb. If I can go back on that white planter and if I can write my initials on there from the dust in the field, it's okay to plant. Yeah. That's my rule of thumb. Uh -huh. And that's served me pretty well over the years. Yeah. Usually, my wife's birthday is April 25th. It's highly unlikely that she'll get to go spend much time with me that day because <laughs> I'm going to be planting my first field of corn. There you go. <laughs> but I will stop for supper and take her somewhere. But there you go. Yeah, there you that's go. tradition. But other than that, you know, but being no-till allows me to do that. I yeah. get my corn in, take her to supper. <laughs> you uh, mentioned yeah. someplace uh, upright, upright leaf corn hybrids. Oh, I forgot about that. Sure, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, you know, Pioneer is sells some hybrids now that are upright leaf, and they're designed to capture more light, mm -hmm. as I understand it. Let more light in the canopy, because light drives the photosynthesis process. So, yeah, I found the upright leaf hybrids tend to yield a little better in that narrow strip system than the lazy leaf hybrids, you know. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Oh, I think because you get more light in the canopy. Right, okay. Especially in the strips, the outside rows. I got pictures of the outside rows showing twin ears, three, four, and twin-eared plants in a 17-foot distance, you know, one one-thousandth of an acre distance. Yeah. And we actually hand harvest that. I had a harvest class through NRCS where kids that worked for us that, from the city that never seen a corn plant. Mm-hmm. Well, he came out, and I got the hand sh shuck ear corn. I had one gal said, that's the first time I've ever shucked the ear corn, you know. Yeah. And we actually hand-checked it with Dr. Kaufman from Monsanto. He was with Agrium at the time. Yeah. And uh, we harvested each row in that six-row system, one one-thousandth of an acre. So we harvested 17 and a half feet in a five-gallon pail and brought it up to the to the truck and I got a, you remember the old one row corn seller? Oh yeah. I, I got those kids an education. I made them run that one ear corn seller yeah. and told them now you can appreciate that we own combines today and you don't have to do it this way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> By doing that, what we learned is we picked up 20 bushel on that outside road and we had like 200 replications because mm. we had quite a crew of kids out there. Yeah, uh, harvesting, and we did it every two hundred feet across the field, and yeah, it was a it was a eye opening how much yield. And the kids would come back with their bucket, and they'd say, "Look, this is the outside row. Can you believe this? You know, it had more ears in it because yeah. of them twin ears and stuff." Yeah. So yeah, that's, you learn these things. I never published that data. I've got all the data, but I've never published. <laughs> you talked about higher. Um plant populations and on, <clears throat> on soybeans we've done a lot of work with Marion Calmer at Alpha Illinois with his 
plots, and he he's got a lot of soybean work that shows instead of planting 220 or 150,000 seeds per acre, he's kept his yields okay with maybe 75,000 plants per acre. So, mm-hmm. and that's a well, you got, that's a big savings on seed cost today with soybeans. I wouldn't argue with you at all, but you have to keep in mind he's growing a group three soybean. Sure. It may not hold true for a group one soybean or group two soybean yep. up in our country. That's again why you got to do your local research and find these things out. One of yep. the reasons I'm doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a really that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, but you even get Mar- a lot more growing season, a lot more light. Right, you know? even Marion, who says <laughs> that my best yields are at seventy five thousand, doesn't have the courage to do six hundred acres at that. <laughs> 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 well, I, I like to plant a little thicker for weed control, too. Yeah. Like, like I said, I've had some pressure with lamb's quarter, but it's getting pretty resistant to Roundup. So yeah. planting a little thicker seems to help suppress that lamb's quarter pretty good, too, being yeah. it's a broad leaf, you know. Shades him out so he can't get started. Yeah. Repeat what you're doing on, with herbicides for controlling this lamb's quarter for me. Oh, well, uh, I've gone to a Banville-type bean. Mm-hmm. But that's worked really well. And I've also gone back to using simple Metrobusin. Sure. Um, because I've been in the Roundup Ready system so long, I had a population that was getting resistant more and more to Roundup, but it wasn't getting resistant to Syncor. Mm-hmm. So you take a, a resistant, Roundup-resistant lambs quarter, and you spray them with Metrobusin, you don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, changing up the group, changing up the chemistry. I'm sure Liberty would work equally as well. I just haven't tried it. But yeah. Banville, uh, even at a, a low rate, is pretty good at controlling that. Plus, you get some residual out of it until the crop gets canopied. So, so yeah. far, that's that seems to be helping a lot. We'll come back to Frank and Jerry in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's www.martintill.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. By any way you look at it, the drought in the Western United States and other areas of the United States have probably already won for the record books. Well, almost half the country's population is facing dry conditions. In the past year, it has been the driest or second driest in most Southwestern states since the record keeping began in 1895. So more water is stored in no-till soils and in fields worked with intensive tillage because we have costly evaporation when we do more tillage. Many groundwater sources will see a dramatic decline unless tighter water allocations are placed on wells. Research indicates an extensive use of no-till could boost corn yields by 20% over the next 36 years in some of the drier developing countries of the world. 
More irrigation could push up yields even more dramatically, but with municipalities needing additional water, farmers must learn to produce crops with less water, and that means we need to see more acres of no-till and strip-till. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Jerry Greiger. So you mentioned earlier, going back to using Paraquat in some situations. Tell, tell me a little more about that. I didn't buy a bit of Roundup this year. Does that tell you something? Yeah. I burned down everything this year with Paraquat and 240. Mm-hmm. Everything got burnt down. And uh, it works good. It's good on mare's tail, especially at a quart of each. Mare's tail doesn't like that situation. When you throw in some Syncor, which suppress a small mare's tail. I didn't like that either. So mm-hmm. I'm even using, uh, if you look at the label for Metrobuzin, you can use two ounces of some core or Metrobuzin on corn. I've been adding that by triazine mix. So this year I got a three-way mix, atrazine, simazine, and some core. Mm-hmm. I want to kill the damn lamb's quarter. Plus I throw a bandbill in there just, just to piss him off more. <laughs> now I got four ways of killing him. That's yeah. working pretty good. <laughs> well, look, it's it not sounds, too costly. <laughs> yeah. Sounds to me like you're having fun farming this small acreage and trying lots of things and not worrying about getting over any huge acreage. And... Yeah, this is this is my experimental farm. This is where I uh, gather knowledge of try different. I can try different things and then pass it on to people like Ray Lawson. You know, mm-hmm. him and I. I'd usually talk a couple times a year about what's working, what isn't working. You know, sure. we've been having some trouble with marriage tail, and so we're looking for ways of, and hen bet, looking for ways of controlling such weeds. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, yeah, but it's hard to believe I got forty years of this under my belt already, almost. You know. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm not time, Frank. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm way ahead of you. So, what <laughs> yeah. else are you, what else are you trying? Well, the no-till black beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting the weed controls down in that is a challenge. I, I'm still working on a good good weed control system there. Had some problems with water hemp in there, and then last year we had a real hot June and. Uh, Boy, it put them beans under a lot of stress, and I was hesitant to spray them. I'd sprayed them with Bassagran and uh, Raptor, but I was hesitant to come back with, uh, there's another product, Taproot, I think it's called, or something like that. Sure. It's a broadleaf anyway. I, I hesitated, and I probably shouldn't have because the lamb's quarter broke, broke through that in that dry weather. <laughs> Beans don't like to be sprayed with bassagran and oil when it gets dry. So, so I've still got some challenges there. I'm working on trying to mm-hmm. figure out the best system. I'm trying to stay away from pursuit in that system because of carryover, and I want to. I like having dry beans in the rotation so I get my winter wheat in earlier. Mm-hmm. Kind of like your silage ground, you know. Sure, right. So that's that's what I've been doing there. I've been using a little bit of slow-release nitrogen on the dry beans as well, trying to figure out that system to see if I can, because, uh, you know, I'm not incorporating my nitrogen, and it's a little later in the spring, so it's a little warmer. So yeah. I've been using a combination of slow-release 
uh, ESM plus uh, ammonia sulfate on dry beans for my nitrogen source these days rather than 28. But that's working out pretty good for me. What's the biggest, uh, any any big mistakes you made in no-till over the years? <laughs> Frank, I make a mistake every year if I'm honest about it. Well, that's uh, where you learn. Well, yeah, you know, I got a new tractor, okay, and it's got two levers for the PTO. When you get my age, you can't handle two levers. It's, you're too used to one, you know. So yeah. this year I had to go back and plant some skips where I'd stopped and adjusted the air pressure on the planter or something, or maybe picked up a rock or whatever. Get back in the tractor and forget to throw the second lever in and go around and say, oh, crap, I got no air pressure. I didn't plant a thing, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm back, back, back to replanting those with a two-row planter, stuff like that. That's probably one of the biggest challenges this year that I had. But uh, my fields actually are getting easier to plant under long-term no-till. They're like they look like garden soil with those three colders when you go over. It's, yeah. It looks like a tilled field. I mean, it just is easier. Right. Like Claire Amosmacher says, this is so easy. I don't know why more guys aren't doing this. Right. <laughs> it just, it gets easier with time. Right. You know? Your mistake reminded me of a story in the early 70s. I talked to a no-tiller in uh, Illinois. And he was planting corn, and he was doing everything with the planter. So he said he, he said he stopped in the field. He, he got more paraquat in the tank. He got Princip in the tank. He got 2,4-D in the tank. He got the insecticide going. He got everything going. And he said, I made two rounds and thought, dang, I never put any seed corn in the hoppers. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that happening. No. Well, that's the other thing. I have once in a while on that white though. Air pressure hose for work attaches to the uh, tube comes off, and then you lose your air pressure. So yeah. Me and black tape have gotten real close to each other. We <laughs> solve that problem with black tape in the field when we don't want to do anything else until we get up to the house. And probably going to go back to putting some silicone on there. I did one just to experiment this year, and, yeah, I'm probably going to go silicone that tube in there because I'm tired of it falling out. And, yeah. Check all your hoppers, and all of a sudden you find out I don't have a monitor. I'm still eyeball monitoring because I pulled my monitor harness in two and never got around to fixing it when I was working So mm -hmm. off the farm. So I just use the eyeball monitor, and that's not the best, let's face it. I mean, it, it creates challenges because right. some of these things happen like this, and you don't notice them right away. So that's why I keep a two-row Kinsey around to go in and replant when I need to. How many rows on your white planter? Six rolls. Okay. Six rolls. Good. Yeah. That's enough for my acreage. You know. Sure. Yeah, well, like I said, I've been at this 40 years. I've seen a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of changes. So, but I wouldn't go back to the other way, not in a minute. What keeps more people from no-tilling? We talked about these big farmers, the fear of failing and wanting to get over a huge acreage and doing tillage. Well, and so it's pressure from the landlords, you know. Mm -hmm. There's some landlords that... You know, let's face it, they want to see it done like they did it. They want to see bare ground out there, you know, when it's yeah. planted. I think that's a big part of it. Oh, that and the fear factor. They're, they're afraid of, that they're going to fail if they go to all these acres with no-till. Sure. Well, and some of it is a, a transitional thing. Like, I can look at the hills west of me. I got a mile and a half west of me is Ithaca Moraine. And mm -hmm. That's hilly ground. It's Ithaca, Parrington, Lowell. It's heavy ground, but... 
wow, those hillsides now are severely eroded. Yeah. And even though they're tilling, you can see, like last year, there's dry beans in there. You could see on those eroded side hills where the soil health was affecting the development of the plant because they just they didn't do as well there. You know, nobody's promoting no-till dry beans over here that I know of. And, you know, they think they got a till for dry beans, but it's not so. Yeah. You know, it's just the university's not promoting it by any means. So, and so uh, that's part of it, getting information from somebody on how to do it, that sort of thing, get the information out, you know, believing that they can do it. How do you go about selling a landowner, an absentee landowner on no-till? Maybe make him a shareholder. Mm -hmm. That way he's got ownership in it. And if he sees his uh, share of his crop goes up, especially in a dry year under no-till, I've seen that in my neighborhood. Same hybrid extension did plot work. Neighbor got 160 on the conventional till, and I got 200 under no till. Mm-hmm. Well, if you get 40 bushel more and you're cutting it third and two thirds, your landlord's got to be a little bit more impressed, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's be the key to, to get them buying into it, get ownership into it. This was a big surprise to me when I when I left Michigan because when I was growing up. It was almost all land rent, it seemed to me, was cash rent. And all of a sudden, we were dealing with Illinois and Indiana farmers, which were shared rent. That's still the most prevalent in Illinois, although cash rent's catching up because it's got so high priced. But uh, Yeah, I don't have all the answers here, I'll tell you. You know, I, I worked at trying to sell this thing for 40 years, and I used my farm as an experimental farm and took pictures and tried to show them. And, I have very, the people will no-till soybeans and they'll no-till wheat around me. Right. But they just will not no-till corn. You just can't get them to no-till corn. They think they got to fall chisel it and plant it. And I've got picture after picture that shows, it, especially in the wet years, where that that isn't necessarily the best system in a wet year because they can't get in there and plant it on time. And if they do a broadcast their urea and we get 14 inches of rain in two months, their corn looks yellow as yellow, you know, instead of green. I got a one picture comparing that. It's just big contrast. And the guy's a good operator. I wouldn't take anything away from him. But mm-hmm. you, you see these things if you stay in the system long enough. Yeah. You know. So these guys who don't, who are no tilling corn or soybeans and wheat, but not corn, are they candidates for strip till or not? I think they could be, but you know, well, again, the equipment cost is a big barrier there. I yeah, think, you know, yeah, yeah. when we had the triple colder system, like I was telling you earlier on the phone, you know, we're looking at thousand dollars an acre per row. Mm-hmm. But uh, but if you go up to start looking at these strip till systems, now you're talking five thousand dollars per acre per row or more, depending on how many bells and whistles and things you yeah. look on there. You know, right? Maybe size of the equipment farm too might make a difference as this equipment's gotten heavier Mm -hmm. i wouldn't say that they don't need the strip till you know some of them got a deep tiller on them and stuff right but you know one of the things we did at the rossin system we came up with that uh, zone builder right and that was to help take out some of the compaction issues that Mm -hmm. had you know occurred on some of his ground from working at 
little bit too wet or working with that heavy equipment. You know, that was one of the reasons we came up with that. That that came out of the drought of 88. We did some root digging and we learned some things from that drought. So out of that came the zone builder. Right. I remember a trip to Ray's. I don't remember when, but he had taken on a new field that had had poor yields on it. And that very first year, he got like 80 bushel soybeans per acre in the late 70s, just by using his system and subsoiling. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> very first yeah. year. I wish I could show you that picture from the drought of 88 I took. I went out on this Ithaca loam and we dig, did some roots. Mm-hmm. root digging in the drought he was wondering why them beans did so good and well the beans that went down you know put a root down 20 inches yeah and same way with warren struffling down in uh, marion county he would been in no-till nine years and he called me up on the phone i was working as area agronomist he says how come these beans yielded 54 so good you know that's kind of how he talked he, yeah he said, uh, we had all this terrible drought, and I still got 50 bushel soybeans. I said, well, your roots must have went deep, or that's yeah. all I can tell you, and got all the moisture that was there. He was on Rensselaer alone. Right. So me and the D.C. went out there with an old Green Hornet AMC car that had a light on it. We dug a four-foot hole and shined it down in there. And we found the soybean root that had gone three and a half feet, and we got tired of digging in that hard clay. But then they went to right. follow an old earthworm channel all the way down there and sucked out every bit of moisture that was there. That's what you start to see under long-term no-till, what earthworms can do for you. Yeah. Plus, the water gets away. I mean, yeah. I've got picture after picture this last 10 years in my neighborhood where they're tilling with that heavy equipment and the water stands in the fields and drowns out their crop and they can farm around in the big holes. And, and uh, I don't have that problem under long term no, until the water gets away. Hey, I mm-hmm. think we're going to wrap this up. You've educated me a great deal and it sounds like you're <laughs> an old guy that's retired but still having lots of fun. I am. As long as my wife sticks with me, we'll keep having fun. Okay. Now, 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 now <laughs> she's, we she's had to tolerate my no tell for a lot of years. Right. Hey, good to talk to you, and good have a great weekend. Okay. You, Take care. You too. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. A farmer recently asked me during the phone conversation how he can get more earthworms to inhabit his no-tilled soils. Well, we already know that uh, there are many more earthworms in no-till fields than in conventional fields, but to get even more, you need to consider planting cover crops, adding manure and compost, reducing the amount of tillage and disturbance of the soil, and keeping the soil covered with a layer of mulch, such as shreddings or something else. And worms like warm but not hot conditions and most conditions, which you don't find in a lot of intensively tilled soils. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Jerry Greiger for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact 
on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.